The scripture reading now is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 18. Let's turn in the word of God for our instruction. 2 Samuel and the 18th chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Let us come and hear God's holy word together. And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But now thou art worth ten thousand of us, therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, And all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel. And the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle was there scattered over all the face of the country. And the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away, and a certain man saw it, and told Joab, and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, Behold, thou sawest him, and why Didst thou not smite him there to the ground? I would have given thee ten shackles of silver and a girdle. The man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shackles of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee, and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, but none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself wouldst have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bared Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. 
And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled every one to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called unto this day Absalom's place. Then said Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, Let me now run and bear the king's tidings, how that the Lord hath avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said unto him, Thou shalt not bear tidings this day, but thou shalt bear tidings another day. But this day thou shalt bear no tidings, because the king's son is dead. Then said Joab to Cushai, Go tell the king what thou hast seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab and ran. Then said Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, yet again to Joab, But whosoever, howsoever, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai. And Joab said, Wherefore wilt thou run, my son, seeing that thou hast no tidings ready? But howsoever he said, Let me run. And he said unto him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and overran Cushai. David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall, and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king. And the king said, If he be alone, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running is alone. The king said, He also bringeth tidings. And the watchman said, Me thinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahemaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and cometh with good tidings. And Ahimaaz called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt. Be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, 
Would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to bless the reading of his holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word. May the Lord draw near to us this morning and give us an understanding of his word and apply it to our needful hearts here on this his day. Let us pray. Well, dear congregation, I have your prayerful attention, please, as you turn in your Bibles there to Second Samuel and the 18th chapter. Second Samuel and the 18th chapter, we arrive in this chapter this morning. Remember at the close of the last chapter, we saw Ahithophel, that is David's long-standing counselor, take his own life. Largely, it was the very fact that he knew that he was going to meet with his end, because Absalom's end was now, as it were, written upon the wall. And uh, you know that old saying that we have in the book of Daniel, the writing is on the wall, miney, miney, tickle, you fasten. He has been found wanting, weighed in the balances. And we know that Absalom is headed for a doom. Absalom, David's son, the oldest son now, because he killed, Absalom killed his older brother Amnon. And uh, Absalom has rebelled against his father. He seems to have taken over Jerusalem, and the people are following Absalom. And he has done some abominable things concerning his father's concubines. Of course, his father never should have had concubines, but he's tried to shame his father. And his end is nigh now. And Ahithophel, after he saw that his counsel was not followed, and the counsel was to go and attack David while he was, um, as it were, lying in wait somewhere, that would have been the most effective course to take. But rather, Absalom took the advice or the counsel of Hushai, who David sent as a mole, as it were, into the camp. Now, verse 23 of chapter 17, it says, When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city, and put his household in order and hanged himself and died. Well, he saw that his end was nigh. And we read there that he was buried in the sepulchre of his father. Ahithophel was, as we saw last time, a cunning and a shrewd man, an intelligent man. Far more intelligent, we could say, humanly speaking, than most of the men in Israel. He gave wise counsel, and he, he was right in the tactical counsel that he gave uh, Absalom and how he could defeat David. But he saw that his counsel was not heeded, and he hung himself. There was also, we could say, shame, regret, pride, lots of things. He had the intelligence to know that Absalom was finished, and that Absalom really was no match for David and David's wisdom, because, that, of course, that came from above. God gave David wisdom, and we see Absalom now in this chapter, the wicked son of David, 
He is determined to fight his father, David, to the very end. There's no wisdom really in Absalom. Absalom should have known now his end is nigh. At least we could say that Ahithophel, though it was wrong for him to take his life, he saw that the end was nigh. The two different ends. Absalom here, he is killed, however, in this chapter, in a very unwitting way, we could say. Now, with both of these men, with Ahithophel, there was no repentance. Although he saw his end was nigh, there was no godly repentance. And we see the same here with Absalom. There's no repentance toward God. Even in the very end, even when he is hanging in a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, and there's no hope for him, there's no repentance, there's a bitter fight even unto the end. And we even see in this chapter how Absalom doesn't even actually face David in the battle. David doesn't even go in the battle. Now, once again in this chapter, as we've seen in every chapter going through the book of Second Samuel and First Samuel, there are tremendous amount of lessons to learn for us as Christians. This is largely Christian teaching in these passages, and we would do well to heed the lessons this morning. There are at least six, we could say, six points to make, six vital lessons. The first is, and I trust we'll all learn this if we're parents, unprincipled love for our children, or ungodly love for our children. We see this in the verses 1 to 5. David loves his son. Now, of course, we should all have a natural affection for our children. That goes without saying. It wouldn't be right to not love our own flesh and blood, but we must never love them at the expense of not loving God and not doing the right thing. We should love our children in a godly way, in a principled way. That should always be the way. But this is David's failure. Now David, of course, he loved God. We know that. David was a a man after God's own heart. And yet at the same time, we can love God and still love our children in an unprincipled way. And I hope we learn that lesson as Christians, because we can all fall prey to this. We can love God, but at the same time, we can have an unprincipled love for our children. And that is extremely unhelpful and unhealthy, not only for us, but for our children. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that David, he numbers the men and he sends them out in three groups. There's Joab, and then Joab's brother, Abishai, and then there's Atai the Gittite. And they go out in three groups, verses 1 to 3. And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth a third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and they're sometimes called the sons of Zeruah, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. So they go out in three groups. And of course, we notice that David says here, surely I will go out 
go forth with the people, myself also, the end of verse 3 there. And the people reply there. What do they say? No, David. The people answered, thou shalt not go forth. Of course, they're saying this out of love. They're concerned. They want David to be the king. They're concerned that he is going to be the primary target. If David is killed, the war is all over. This is all about who is going to be king. It's not about a war between the Israelites, but about who is the rightful king. And of course, we know, according to God's eyes and God's purposes, David is the rightful king. And then Solomon will follow after him, because the Savior must come into the world. We must always keep that at the back of our minds when we come to this chapter, or any chapter of God's Word in the Old Testament. Christ is the one that is being set forth as the one who will succeed in the end. And the people say, For if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But know thou art worth ten thousand of us, therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. So they are determined to go, and they say to David, No, you don't go in the battle. We will go. In other words, David's life is very precious here. Absalom is after your life. Well, David agrees to this, verse 4. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. My, David had a great following. And of course, so does Absalom, his rebellious son. Now, it is quite striking here in mercy that David is providentially removed from the battle. This is quite striking. It would have been a very difficult battle for him to have to fight his own son. And that we can see at the heart of all this chapter, we see how David truly laments the death of his son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, at the end. And he says, oh, how I could have died for thee. It would have been extremely difficult for David. But in God's providence, in God's kindness, David is spared from having to face his son. Could you imagine this? And so he acquiesces, he agrees to stay back uh, from this battle. Now, Here's the thing. As we come to this passage, David unashamedly seeks to preserve his son's life. And you think about it, we are told that 20,000 men are slain because of Absalom. This whole battle is all about Absalom. And Absalom, who is, by the way, trying to take his father's own life. And yet David unashamedly tries to protect him. And surely this would have discouraged David's followers, wouldn't it? You think of all these men that are prepared to fight for David, and they say to David, no, you stay back, we'll fight. And yet David says, you protect my son, verse 5. Notice, and the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Etai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. Now notice these words. The Holy Spirit of God 
preserves them for us. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. All these people that went out, the men to fight for David, heard what David said. Now surely that would have been so discouraging for them. The man that has caused all of this ruckus and trouble has to be protected. It seems terrible. In other words, what he's saying is preserve Absalom's life. But friends, this is blameworthy, isn't it? This is really blameworthy of the highest order. How could David do this? The very man that causes 20,000 to be slain should be protected. It seems wholly wrong. Well, it was right in a sense for him to grieve his son and all that is taking place. But surely it is wrong that he forgets what his son has done. After all, his son is a murderer. He killed his brother. His son has laid with all these concubines, ten of them in Jerusalem. And all the people heard when David gave all the captain's charge concerning Absalom, we're told. Surely Absalom, this treasonous son, this murderer, this insurrectionist, ought to be slain. If anybody ought to be killed, he should have been the target. That would have been right. And David, by the way, is king. Remember what Romans chapter 13 tells us, that the sword is not given to the king in vain. And David, really, he was within his right, and he had the authority to have his son executed, and he should have. He should have done this a long time ago. It's just got worse now. He should never have even allowed him to come into the palace. He should never have, as it were, embraced his son before all the people. He should have brought brought him to justice a long time ago. You see, the problem is this. David is being led by emotion. David is not being led by godly principle. He is the king. He's, He's being a father but he is not being a godly king. A father, of course, loves his son. But again, we must love our children, but not unprincipally. Our children are not above the law. If they've done wrong, they've done wrong. And everything is in God's eyes. The best thing David could have done a long time ago is brought his son to face justice. And if his son would have repented... He would have found forgiveness. And that's the best thing we can do with our children. When they have done wrong, bring the truth before them. The most unloving thing you can do is allow your child to go on in their sin by excusing it all the time. So important we learn these lessons. This is an unprincipled love. David never did his son any good. And parents can be like this. We cannot do our children good by excusing their sin all the time. If sin is tolerated, it it is harmful to them 
It's harmful to us, it's harmful to the church, it's harmful to the people of God, and it's wrong. And we will suffer, and they will suffer, of course. The best thing David could have done is brought him to justice. If he'd repented, then he had been forgiven. Brethren, we must love our children, but only in a way that honors God. Again, we've seen this lesson time and again. Now, sadly, it happens in churches. Very sad. Family members can show preferential treatment to their family in a church. And uh, people are excused for all kinds of things. Love is not to be confused with sinful emotions. Never. Love means the highest good for others. And sometimes... It, it means the severe chastening of the Lord. But you must remember that this life is short, isn't it? This life is not the all-important thing, is it? The life to come is everything. Are they ready to die? Are they ready to face judgment? I mean the eternal judgment. Are they ready to face Almighty God? The highest good David could have done for Absalom was to bring him to justice for the good of his son's soul and for the good of the country. But now look how he discourages everybody. Protect my son. One day God is going to require it at the hand of Absalom. Well, what do we learn? Real love, firstly, is sacrificial. Hear what I'm saying. Real love is sacrificial. If you're a parent and you see your child has done wrong, you've got to put your emotions aside. Put them aside. Don't confuse Emotion with love. If you love your child, think of eternity. Think of the future. If you're thinking of emotion, you're thinking of just the here and the now. That's all you're thinking about. But one day, you and they will stand before Almighty God. Better to fall out with your child now than to Stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you never said anything. Be a solemn day, won't it? They say, well, you didn't love me. You didn't speak the truth. Better to fall out with your children now. And I don't say you do this deliberately. Of course, the Bible tells us to seek to be at peace with all men as much as depends upon us. But you have to speak the truth in love. And we have to address problems as they arise. And as we've seen, David is king. And we're told in Romans 13, verse 6, for this cause we are, must be need subject, verse 5, not only to wrath to the king, but also for conscience sake, for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Rulers are not a terror to good works, Paul tells us, but to evil. David here is being led by emotions. Instead of being the king, he is putting that aside. Instead of doing his duty to God, he shows partiality to his son, to his wicked and ungodly son, and he's just ruining the country. And he's ruining himself. He's ruining his conscience. And he's not acting as a godly king. 
But as I said, sadly, partiality even takes place in churches where people are Christians and, uh, you know, the old saying, blood is thicker than water. You've heard that expression, haven't you? And uh, church offices, their children somehow are let off. Uh, they've done something wrong. Well, because dad's a deacon or an elder or a pastor, well, they seem to get off lighter. That's wrong, isn't it? It's absolutely wrong, and, and, it, and it discourages the church. It discourages God's people. That we have known, perhaps you've even known some well-known families in some circles. Think because they have a name. They have an entitlement to be exempt from the Word of God and from church discipline. That ought never to be the case. It was never to be the case here. It was wrong for David to do this. So that's the first thing we see, unprincipled love. But then we see a principled war, verses 6 to the verse 8. And this is commanded by the king. David does do right here. He numbers the men. And uh, they go out to fight against Absalom and his men. But it was wrong for him to try to protect his son Absalom, verse 6. So the people went out into the field against Israel and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim. So it was a principled war. David is the rightful king. And David is, we could say, God had made to him a covenant that he would put upon David's throne an everlasting king. And that's the Lord Jesus. We've got to look beyond David, don't we? To David's greater son. And the people are honoring the rightful king. David was the anointed. Remember, it was Samuel that anointed David how many times? Three times. First, in the days of Saul. And then he was anointed king of Judah. And then finally, thirdly, he was anointed king of Israel. And so the people go out and fight. And they fight in the same place where Joshua fought in the wood of Ephraim. Now you notice there's a very striking verse in verse 7 where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David and there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. Now the, it, it, it's amazing, 20,000 men were slain that day. Now we don't know how many on David's side and we don't certainly know how many on Absalom's side were slain, but 20,000 men. But we're told here, notice verse 8, what is the explanation of the, the whole matter here of why, how many were slain? And it's believed as you, as you read this, and I, I would agree with most of the commentators, that it was mostly Absalom's men that were slain. The vast majority were Absalom's men. Now notice, for the battle was there scattered over all the face of the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. That's, that's a verse that is often missed. The wood, the surroundings, the trees. And that's where David and his men were. And it seems that nature, God's creation, had destroyed them. Just the surroundings. They fell in pits or the wild beasts at them. It's interesting what Dr. John Gill has to say to this. More than half the men of Israel died to the surroundings. 
more than the sword devoured. It's quite striking, isn't it? God has his ways. And it's quite interesting, even Absalom, we could say, is slain by the woods, by a tree. He has his head caught up in that oak tree. So there is more slain in the woods than in the field of battle. And this, of course, is the Lord's doing. Josephus Flavius, one of the great Jewish historians, in the first century says, the Targum, that is the Hebrew Bible, into the Aramaic language, says there were more slain fleeing than fighting. And perhaps some might perish by wild beasts. So the Targum, which is the Hebrew Bible into the Aramaic language. So it's the same. And this is all, of course, what we would say providential. The Lord has his ways, doesn't he? Remember also the battle which was fought by Deborah and Barak, or Barak, should we say, and how the Lord caused many to perish in the river full of um, mud, and the horses got caught. God has sent down the rain, and they perished. And God has ways, he has means, doesn't he? So we see how many here perished simply by the surroundings. For the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. So, these things are quite striking to us and uh, important. Although we could say, and we know this as we, you look at the numbers, Absalom, it seems, has most Israel behind him at this point. David was far outnumbered by Absalom and his men. But the Lord, by his power and by the surroundings, was able to defeat them. The victory really is of the Lord. And this is marvelous. Now thirdly, we have seen, first of all, we've seen an unprincipled love, then we've seen a principled war, and we've seen the Lord win the battle, as it were, in the verse 8. But then thirdly, we see Absalom's end. Notice in the verse 9 and following. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick bows or boughs of a great oak. And his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between heaven and earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And so here is Absalom. And the way he dies is quite, as I said already, is quite telling, isn't it? Quite remarkable. And it's interesting here, you can imagine the scene. The men, everybody has heard, do not touch Absalom. And you can imagine, we're told here, Absalom met the servants of David. And you can imagine the scene, they were told not to touch him, not to strike him. And there must have been, as I imagine, as I think of it, an air of confidence about him. As David's men come out against him and they meet and they speak, and he thinks, ah, all is well. Then all of a sudden, his head is caught in an oak. 
And one wonders what must have been going through his mind at that particular time. Full of self-confidence one minute, then the next minute he's hanging. I wonder, and heaven will reveal, as he was caught suspended, And no doubt, I'm sure that his long hair must have been caught within this oak. We're told that his head was hanging by his head. There's no shame in him. Yet. It must have been at this particular time. Surely, he must have been thinking in his mind now, what is going to happen to me? His men can't touch me. And I wonder what he was thinking in between that time that Joab comes back with those three arrows and smites him through the heart. And then all the other men. I wonder if in that time you would have considered this as the Lord's judgment. It wasn't man. But providence is put in there in that tree, hasn't it? These men don't touch me. But just as the woods took more men than the sword did that day, one wonders, I mean, heaven will reveal what he was thinking in those last few moments. But there's no indication that he repented. There's no indication here that when Joab comes back that there's any remorse. We're told in verse 10, And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Now we know that this man is honorable. This man that sees it and he comes back and he tells Joab because when he reports it to Joab, Joab says, well, you, How come you didn't, you didn't slay him? Verse 11, And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst thou not smite him there to the very ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. The girdle was a mark of honor, military honor. It was like, I suppose, receiving some grand military title. And he would have also received ten shekels of silver. Wouldn't that be a considerable amount of money? And the man returns and uh, replies to him and says, even if you were to give me a thousand, I wouldn't have taken it. Why? Because the king has said no. Now it was wrong for David to say, protect my son. But it was right for this man to honor the king. And that's vital to learn. This man was a humble man. The king is the Lord's anointed. But he actually says to Job, look, even if I told you the verse 13, you wouldn't have protected me. This man knew what Job was like, uh, Joab was like. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no matter hid from the king. And thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. He said, you know, in effect, all this money you're offering me, all this titleship, I, I wouldn't have put my life at risk. Because you wouldn't have protected me. If you'd have gone to the king and the king would have been a rage, you wouldn't have protected me. You say one thing. See, this is how Joab was. Joab was a man of convenience. 
Joab was a man who used people. And so, this is the case. One thing about this man here, he wasn't afraid to speak the truth to Joab. It's quite commendable, isn't it? Joab was a very powerful military leader here, commander of David's army. And he was right to submit, although to the king's misguided orders. David was misguided. David should have been more principled concerning his son, but the man was right to submit to the king. He was right to submit to David. We mustn't forget that. David had given orders not to touch him. Remember, Lex Telionos is in the hands of the government, not the people. Remember, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Is that in the common person's hands? No. It is in the hands of those who are given power, the state. It's not for us if we are given a very clear commandment. This man has done the right thing. He knew he had no right to disobey the king on this point. Now, of course, if this Absalom tried to kill him, he would have been right to preserve his own life. That we believe is true. But he honored David here. So first of all, we've seen unprincipled love in David. Then we've seen principled action by the people. And then thirdly, a principled man. This man was principled. And he was not a weakling, by the way. He told Joab exactly what he thought. And he was right. But fourthly, we find an unprincipled hatred. And that is in Joab. Verse 14, Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to waste time talking to you. That's really what he's saying in the verse 14. There's no point talking to you. I'm not wasting any more time. And so we read, And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak, despite what David said. Now, Joab was wrong in this, firstly because the king had issued orders, and the king must be obeyed in this. But the way, secondly, Joab did this was wrong, because it was not done out of a sense of justice. Now, you just rewind back in your mind Joab's attitude right from the beginning. Joab was the very one who brought Absalom back into Jerusalem. He didn't care about God's justice. He didn't care about honor. You remember that? And then what did Absalom do when he couldn't see his father? He began to set Joab's fields alight. Joab is not really concerned about God's justice. Remember, Absalom has now appointed somebody else in Joab's place. There's a real hatred for this man. It's unprincipled hatred. Now we are told to hate what is evil. But here, Joab is not acting out of a sense of justice. He's got an axe to grind. The right thing for Joab to have done, as he was hanging there, is took the man down, 
brought him to David and said to David, now deal with your son. That would have been the right thing to do. Don't you think? If he was a real friend to David, he'd have said, David, act the man. Play the man. Israel's getting worse because you're not dealing with your son. That would have been the right approach. You see, a real friend, a real Christian friend, will make you a stronger Christian and will help you to act in the right way toward God. That's what Joab should have been. Now it's interesting when we consider Joab and we consider his brothers, David could never really control these men. Joab and Abishai, these sons of Ruah, he seemed, David seemed to have a problem, and a lot of it was because of David's own sin. And he never acted. Look, I mean, go back to the time when he conspired to kill Uriah the Hittite. He involved Joab in that sin, didn't he? And you start to make compromises with people. Puts you in a very weak and untenable position. And he was in an untenable position. What Joab should have done is got Absalom down from the tree, taken him to his father and said, now we've got him. Now bring him to justice. Let the judges deal with him and let him be executed. That would have been the honorable thing. And if your son repents, he repents. But he dies a repentant man. Wouldn't you agree? That's the right way. Verse 16. So Absalom, we see, is now dead. And what happens? Joab blows the trumpet. He he calls off the battle. And the people returned from pursuing after Israel. For Joab held back the people. Now, fifthly, what we see is not only unprincipled anger, but we see a lone burial and a very sad legacy. And that is of Absalom. A lone burial and a very sad legacy. And they took Absalom, verse 17, and cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, every one, to his own tent. So it was done very quickly. No no memorial there, no funeral service. He was just thrown in a great pit. Out in the middle of nowhere, it was done suddenly. And that's it. That's his life. But you notice Absalom's legacy. It's the legacy which he wanted left for himself. Verse 18, it's a brief commentary on his life. This is what we could say is his epitaph. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called unto this day Absalom's place. Now just think about this. There's only one memorial left to Absalom, but it's a place that he has reared up for himself. It's a memorial. It's a pillar, we're told here. He put himself up a pillar, and he called the place Absalom's place. Well, that's a bit 
uh, bit of Absalom, isn't it? Absalom's place. As if he was some grand figure. But it says here, he says, I have no sons, but that's not true. What does he mean where, where he says, I have no sons. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's daily. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. But that, that's not true. If you just turn, he had three sons. Just turn back to 2 Samuel 14, 27. And unto Absalom there were born three sons. Now by the way, we're not given their names, remember? We're only given the name of his daughter Tamar, who was more than likely named after his sister that he allegedly protected. But he says here, I have no son. But we recall he had three sons, but no name given. Now one wonders. There are a number of possibilities here. Did these sons either die, or were they so ashamed of their father that they disowned him? We don't know. That's a possibility. Or was it that he didn't acknowledge them? Well, we know he had sons. That's what the scripture says. But think of it. Who would want a father like this? I mean, really, who would want a father like this? A lured man. An ungodly man. It, it, it strikes us to think that Absalom was a father. That he raised children. I mean, we don't want to mention the wicked things that he's done and the wickedness of his own heart hating his father and laying with his concubines. Here's the thing. Despite this man's handsome appearance, I have no doubt that he was an utter embarrassment to his family. And it may be, we don't know. When he says, I have no sons, maybe his sons wanted nothing to do with him. Well, maybe they'd even died. We don't know. Maybe they just feared their own lives. But it does raise a number of questions, doesn't it? In our minds. You see, Absalom, it says here, he raised a pillar in his life. All he was concerned about was his reputation, or should we say his memory in this life. But he never lived for God. He, he never left a good legacy, did he? He left a wicked legacy. But this is how the wicked are. They, they want to make their mark in this life. They want to, to, to leave a name, but not a good name. He wanted to be king. He wanted to be acknowledged. He wanted recognition. And, and really, this is how... The unbelieving, ungodly are. This is how the reprobate are. Despite this man's handsome appearance, he was as wicked and proud as can be. He was a vain man. He truly was. He was concerned about a memorial. And so many people are like that. Oh, I'd like a, my name on a plaque somewhere. On some village hall. I've done this, I've done that. But what about God? You know, your life and my life, we could say, 
is a memorial. The way we lived before God. The psalmist tells us that the righteous are in everlasting remembrance. You can, you can leave a memorial somewhere, but people read your life, don't they? His memorial is left on Scripture. We don't know where his pillar stone is now. It's nowhere to be found. But you know, God has his books. And our days are written in God's books. And we're told one day the books will be opened up. And every man shall be judged according to his deeds. And unless our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we'll perish with our deeds. Because by nature they're not good, are they? We have sinned. But if we are Christ's, he shed his blood for us and we live for him. We don't live for ourselves. We don't live for a name. We don't live for a plaque. We don't live for a memorial. We don't live for some pillar. It's interesting. Psalm 49 verse 11 says concerning the wicked, the inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations they call their lands after their own names. That's exactly what he did. Absalom's place. You know, you can drive across the country and find some streets named after the various people. You think, who are these people? The Lord knows the lives of everybody. Unless our lives are lived for him, it's not a life worth living, is it? There's one life, it'll soon be passed, my friends. It's only what's done for Jesus that will last. Have we lived for God? Have we lived to his glory? Psalm 112 verse 6 says, The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Absalom was not righteous. Many live as if they're going to live forever in this world. And... Spend more time on externals, memorials, and they want those things to live on, but they neglect the eternal. This man went down to the pit, and literally, I believe, to be reserved in judgment for the great day of our Lord. His son's names are unknown. We don't know why. Maybe they wanted nothing to do with him. Or maybe they were killed and we don't know. Sixthly, lastly, we close with this unprincipled love again. Verse 19 to the end. David, he has a love for his son. And we're told here that this man in verse 19, Ahimaaz, wanted to go with the news and tell David. David knew he was a good man. David tells us this. But it seems Joab forbids him. He says, no, you, you can't go. I don't want you to go. Thou shalt not bear tidings this day. Verse 20, he says to this man, Ahimez. But on another day. Why? Because the king's son is dead. Now, the question arises, why does Joab forbid this man, Ahimez, going, but he sends another man, Cushai? Whether many have conjectured over this and but I think a reasonable explanation is this. 
is that Joab did not understand David, and he did not understand David's God. David, although he had this unprincipled love for his son Absalom, David knew that it was the Lord's will. Remember what Eli said when he heard about his sons being slain? Tis the Lord. Tis the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him right. Remember when Job had his children taken? What did Job do? He shaved his head, covered himself in sackcloth and ashes, bowed himself to the ground and said, The Lord hath given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, David had an inbuilt sense of God's justice. He knew right was right, wrong was wrong. But you see, the wicked, like Joab, do not understand God, and they do not understand God's people. They do not understand what it means to be born again. That you're given a new heart. And that you accept God's will. Now, we read here that David continues to lament and to mourn after Absalom, even after hearing the news. And that was wrong. Yes, we must mourn. But it's wrong, isn't it, to persist and to wallow in it. And this is what David does as you look on in the next chapter, chapter 19. And that God even has to use this ungodly man, Joab, to rebuke David for this ongoing mourning over his ungodly son. And David would have been wrong to rejoice in his death. But he should have rejoiced in God's justice over the matter. Surely. Notice verse 1 of chapter 19. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people gat them by stealth that day into the city. And the people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life, and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines, in that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. For thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. For this day I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and all we had died this day, then it pleased thee well. Now therefore, arise, go forth, and speak comfortably to thy servants. A very solemn word, isn't it? It is right to mourn the loss of the ungodly but not overly. And that is what David is doing here. We must rather rejoice in the righteous judgment of God. And if it is to slay one of our loved ones 
who has despised him and the riches of his grace, so be it. It will be in heaven, friends. It may seem hard to say that now, but there will come a day when God's people will be in heaven with Christ. And they will not mourn lost, but will be taken up in wonder and praise in our deliverance through Jesus Christ. And you remember this. If you find that a hard thing to swallow, just think what God had to do in order to save you if you're a Christian. He had to send Christ into this world, my friend, and to live the life that you never lived, and then to die in your stead, to bear your sins in his own body, as Peter says. Our sins were laid on him, Will there be any complaining at the lost then in that day? When we realize afresh what Christ had to do for us, we will just be thankful that Christ bore damnation for us and we'd be lost. When we look at Absalom, what do we do? We pity him. Because really, you and I are no better than Absalom. But by grace, God has made us to differ. Let me say this. The seeds of all kinds of sin are in your heart and in my heart, aren't they? And if we have a child, if we have a son that is wicked, while they're living, we can pray for them. While they're living, we can witness to them. While they're living... We can even use the knowledge that God is just and He will not clear the guiltless and warn them and tell them that God is holy, that God is merciful to all who repent and believe upon Him. He will receive. After all, was Paul not Saul of Tarsus once? Did not God convert his heart? What about Manasseh? What about others? Who can tell what the Lord might do? Let us not be compromising as David. David was wrong. But the Lord put all that right. And he even had to use an ungodly military leader like Joab. To set him right. It's, it's amazing, isn't it, even how God can use somebody like Joab. And Joab could see even more clearly than David at this point. Even being lost. David was blinded by his own love for his son. An unprincipled love. Let us have a principled love for God. And his laws. And his ways. God keep us for himself. And make us good servants of Jesus Christ. Amen.